Hi, you're listening to Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin. So today I am in Dallas and yeah, the last few days I've been in Austin and in Dallas. It's been great to meet the Bitcoiners out here. I've met many listeners as well. And so yeah, I'm here for BitBlock Boom. And so today is the workshop day and then tomorrow is the actual conference day. So I'm looking forward to that also. So today for episode 303, we have Alex B joining me and we're talking about Ethereum's path to centralization. So being honest, yeah, I think Ethereum is a shitcoin, but are there ways that Bitcoiners can offer intelligent critique? And so today we talk about a range of things like MEV, can it be stopped? The interaction between MEV and staking derivatives, Ethereum as the MySpace, and why Ethereum cannot be ultrasound money. So these are some of the ideas that we get into in this show. This show is brought to you by Swan Bitcoin. And one interesting and important aspect of Swan is the education factor. So Swan is actually focused on trying to teach your new coiner and pre-coiner friends about Bitcoin. So for example, Jan Pritzker's book, Inventing Bitcoin, which is an excellent resource. It's a short read and it gives people a little bit of a technical explanation of some of the concepts behind Bitcoin. And Swan is providing that for free. So if you want that, go to swanbitcoin.com slash free book. So make sure you send that to your family and friends so they can learn about Bitcoin. And then obviously they can set up an auto stacking plan or if they're a high net worth individual or a company or a business, they can sign up with Swan Private. So if you're interested in that, send them to swanbitcoin.com slash freebook. Are you interested in peer-to-peer Bitcoin lending? Lend at HODL HODL is a peer-to-peer Bitcoin-backed lending platform. So you can lend out stable coins, or if you have Bitcoin, you can borrow against your Bitcoin. It's the collateral as part of the loan. So this is a global and anonymous solution. You don't have to do KYC. So think of it like this. You don't, if you've got Bitcoin and you need some liquidity, you don't have to sell now. You can actually borrow against that. And you still hold one key in that two of three multi-signature you know there's been no rehypothecation, and you can see that the money literally has not moved. So HODL HODL does not hold your funds. Lend at HODL HODL is a peer-to-peer lending and borrowing platform. So you go there, you set your own terms, put up offers depending on how long you want to borrow or lend and the interest rate. Go to lend.hodlhodl.com. Are you interested in Bitcoin mining, but you're not sure where to get started? Compass Mining can help you. So Compass Mining helps you by making ASICs available for you to purchase, as well as having vetted facilities that they have looked into. So you can select an ASIC, select a hosting facility and join a mining pool and start receiving SATs. So you'll pay upfront for the miner and pay the hosting costs and electricity, but otherwise this is an easy way to get accessible costs of entry into the Bitcoin mining world. So if you're interested, go to compassmining.io and sign up. On to the show. Alex, welcome to the show. Hey, Stefan. Happy to be here. Excited to do this. Yeah, so Alex, I've been following you online for a while. I know you've been around the Bitcoin space as a, you know, commentating on things and writing as well and uh, tweeting about out about things. Uh, do you want to just give a bit of a background for listeners who don't know you? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I've been pretty involved. I, I would say, uh, I guess I started my journey around 2013, got pretty active on uh, the related social medias and forums, uh, I guess, Bitcoin talk and, and Reddit early on, which eventually actually led me to uh, all of it, obviously all of that ramped up as uh, the sort of block size debate uh, started picking up. Uh, and that's when I started getting very, 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 very active. And uh, that actually eventually led me to an opportunity in the uh, in, in the industry as the, <laughs> the first uh, official troll for hire at Blockstream. <laughs> um, so I had a, I had a bit of a short stint there, 
but I think it was very productive. Did a lot of good in terms of helping with the community effort uh, at uh, with regards to the block size debate and all that, and sort of producing documentation and uh, some write-ups about uh, the entire debate. So that was that was definitely interesting. After that, I had a bit of a hiatus uh, for a couple of years. The 2017 uh, sort of bubble came along that allowed me to kick back a little bit. And I, I started getting a little more active again. I guess last year, you know, COVID and all that, we were all kind of stuck into in, in front of our computer with nothing much to do but start shit posting again. Um, so here, here I am. I, I got involved again with the industry with company I'll keep private, but um, yeah, it's good to be here. Uh, interesting times. I mean, obviously, with all that's happening, the way the growth, the industry has been growing, very exciting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I'm curious, would you put yourself in the Bitcoin maxi camp or kind of where where are you situated? Yeah, definitely Bitcoin maxi camp. I, I tend to have a more, uh, I think, a, a bit of a more open mind uh, than than others. Uh, I I actually believe in. This is what led me to uh, some of the stuff that we're talking about today is like if, if we're going to be uh, sort of commenting and uh, or even debating with uh, other parts of the ecosystem, I think we owe it to ourselves, you know, to have a, a better understanding, I think, of uh, some of the other shit coins that are around, at least to the extent that they they may have claimed to some of the properties that, that Bitcoin has. So, you know, we've seen that with Ethereum sort of switching the narratives to, to their ultrasound money. Uh, and so there are a lot of people that are that try to refrain from entertaining these debates. Uh, they make the argument, of course, that, that Bitcoin and ETH aren't competing, which I think is fair. Ultimately, I, I do believe that as well. But unfortunately, they're they're sort of uh, trying to hijack the narrative that, that Bitcoin's built. And, and so uh, the new people that are coming into the ecosystem, I think, are owed uh, some kind of explanation as to, as to how both systems differ. And if we're going to get into that, and if we're going to come across as sort of rational observers, you want to have a, at least a decent grasp of what's happening on the, uh, on, the on the other side of the field and be able to put forward, uh, put forward better arguments. Uh, so, so here I am, yeah. Yeah, great. So yeah, today we're going to chat a little bit about why there are certain centralizing tendencies inside Ethereum. So maybe you want to just give us a bit of a high-level overview. What's, the, what's your thinking here? Well, I, I guess it all began, you know, with that massive Twitter thread that I put up. I mean, it's been a couple of months now, I guess. And I don't know exactly how I uh, came around to this write-up. I, I think I had followed this this idea of the uh, staking derivatives, um, particularly the, uh, the Lido implementation. And I had a sneaking suspicion that this was going to have a massive impact on the dynamics and sort of the incentives around around the, the proof of stake proposition that Ethereum has. And then I um, then I encountered, or at least started digging a little deeper into the uh, the whole MEV thing, uh, as this was becoming a pretty hot topic um, in, in the Ethereum community. And I uh, what I found was I think pretty ugly to say the least. Um, and, and I also I also realized that some of the concepts behind it and this was sort of validated uh by by me putting this thread out is there are not a lot of people uh in the ethereum ecosystem that are actually aware uh, of what's going on here i mean obviously the more technical circles are are keenly aware of it uh, to the extent that they, they've fully recognized it as a challenge and, and some of them are actually pretty worried about it but uh, outside of these circles although it's uh, you know it's been talked about 
in some podcasts. Uh, people have been putting out some articles on it. Uh, it seems very clear to me after putting out that thread that the larger ecosystem really did not fully uh, recognize uh, the challenges that that this whole that this entire concept uh, brought about. Um, so ended up just browsing through through Twitter, digging through a couple of threads, and and sort of highlighting. Uh, what were those dynamics and how that could eventually play out. Um, and I ended up realizing that uh, the combination of, of, of staking, the combination of, of those derivatives and the combination of, uh, of MEV led to a pretty grim sort of uh, centralized uh, forces that it seems to me will be dictating the future in Ethereum in some ways. And so I, I thought that was worthy to share. And uh, given the reactions, I mean, this week's gotten almost 2 million prints now. It's still running. People are still retweeting it nowadays. Uh, I mean, I've had now, I don't know that I'm a Ethereum influencer now, but like I have had so many people, uh, probably 4,000 more followers just from that tweet alone. And, uh, and a lot of them were actually seems, or at least seems to be uh, Ethereum followers. So it's although, although I'm a maxi, it seems that people start valuing my opinion on those things. Not that I'm some kind of expert, but I guess it's worthy to, uh, you know, bring, bring some balance. Yeah, so I mean, let's break that down. You mentioned three main ideas, which I think maybe it would be good to explain what those are, and then we can dive a little bit further into those. So you mentioned the, let's call it the interaction between three different things that are all combined in a way of centralization. So you mentioned staking, you mentioned also liquid staking or the staking derivatives, perhaps, and also finally the MEV concept. So could you just give, for people who don't know what this is, like if they just have only ever used Bitcoin and they've never heard anything about proof of stake, what are what are these ideas? The staking, liquid staking, and MEV. Yeah, uh, sure. Maybe we can start with MEV. Yeah. So MEV stands originally for minor extracted value. They flipped the uh, term a little bit for it to mean sort of maximally, maximally extracted value or maximal extractable value. Um, and is and people that are within Bitcoin only might not be too familiar because. The fact of the matter is there's not many MEV opportunities with Bitcoin. MEV opportunities are essentially arbitrage opportunities that are offered mainly because of the nature of these smart contracting systems, the EVM type, such as Ethereum, or really any platform that offers, you know, large-scale smart contracts, decentralized, uh, those decentralized exchanges and whatnot. And um, the nature of it basically is this... Um, this is made possible because some entities have the opportunity to order transactions in a way that allow for them to uh, essentially front run other participants in the ecosystem. So obviously, if you've got a decentralized exchange, then if you're able to uh, place a and given the transparency of the uh, of these network, you're able to sort of observe and monitor any transactions that are going through these systems. And if you find an arbitrage opportunity that will allow you to capture a certain amount of value, then if you if you sit in, in a place where, uh, as a miner, obviously, or anyone that's willing to outbid the other participants uh, and get your transaction in a block and confirmed before the other, and you're able to capture that value, sometimes to the detriment of the other participants. I think there's some arguments that some some of the MEV is actually positive. It makes the markets more efficient. And I believe that it's, that's a reasonable argument. But there are also some uh, other concepts such, a, such as um, sandwich attack, for example, that directly target uh, users of these um, decentralized exchange, for example, and essentially 
create a situation where they're a victim of slippage, whereas the sandwich attack w- would basically be that a uh, an immediate extractor uh, targets a user that wants to make a certain transaction on these decentralized exchange, initially front runs that transaction so that the price of the asset that the user is willing to buy goes up because the, his transaction, the the NVV extractor transaction goes in before his, then the user obviously ends up paying a higher price for, for the transaction that he was ur- originally uh, willing to make. Uh, and on the, on the other side of that, it could very well be that the uh, people that initially bumped the price of that transaction by front running him is actually the one that is selling him back the token at a higher price, capturing that inefficiency in, in, in the market. And because of that, you also have the um, this, this dynamic where the people that are being front run sometimes, there's this entire sort of concept in, in Ethereum where unfortunately, if your transaction doesn't go through, you end up paying fees nonetheless. And so... I mean, given the state of fees in Ethereum at the moment, uh, which can be pretty high, especially on uh, when doing those sort of swap exchanges regularly from $50 to $200, uh, then people are victims of failed transactions. Uh, people are paying 50 to hundreds of dollars uh, for transactions that aren't, that aren't going through, specifically because they're being targeted uh, by these uh, sort of MEV opportunists. So that's, I guess the basis uh, of MEV. It, it's a pretty, pretty, pretty interesting issue. It, it is one that has effectively no limit in, in the way that it can be gained because the more applications that are brought about on, on Ethereum, the, the more uh, different games and systems that are being developed, then arises more opportunities for MEV. Uh, and it's not very clear that there's a, that there's really a solution for that. And so... Yeah, I, I think that's... Yeah, I see. So let me, I guess maybe it's, it sounds, to, as you were explaining it there, it sounds similar to what people might have seen, that whole Flash Boys story or uh, the whole uh, idea of those uh, like people who set up their trading right really close to a stock exchange and they try to front run the incoming orders and they try to basically beat sort of profit off of that. It almost seems like an Ethereum version of that and like the certain tendencies that are being created by these opportunities because now everyone's trying to go for some MEV. So let's talk a little bit about why it's not possible for them. Like, is it possible for this to be fixed? I mean, it's a, it's a it's sort of a... I think that's one of the biggest questions uh, that Ethereum is facing at the moment. And if you actually read some of the work uh, of some of the people that are most involved in, in uh, at least this. Uh, so to, to your comment, uh, they're, they're fully aware that uh, there, there are parallels here to the extent that they the biggest sort of piece of research that's been done on MEV in the Ethereum ecosystem has been released on their white paper that they call uh, Flash Boys, literally. Or uh, anyway, the, I guess the ultimate... What what came out of it was this concept of flashbots, which which is one of the solution that they've brought uh, forward, and it is a um, solution that allows for people to essentially bypass the um, the, the public blockchain, the public public mempool of Ethereum, and that came about because as these MEV opportunities started to arise, and mostly they did uh, when DeFi uh, started really picking up. St- uh, steam back in I guess last year then what happened is you had these people that uh, started spotting those opportunities and started writing bots that would essentially 
try and outbid each other for those, you know, those front running, uh, those arbitrage opportunities. And what this um, essentially created is really a um, an absolute bidding war uh, on Ethereum, where the network started getting very quickly at full capacity. The fees started ramping up because those bots would obviously uh, broadcast their transaction and consistently outbid each other. And so Flashbots was created to um, sort of work around that by creating this new um, auction system for MEV products, MEV um, extractors to essentially bundle transactions um, and propose them directly to um, the miners in a essentially off-chain. Uh, so they've created this uh, network, they've created this sort of off-chain mempool, if you will, uh, that allows people to, that allows these extractors to share the, their transactions, their bundle transaction, and, and bid for them uh, without essentially uh, filling up the Ethereum blockchain uh, with those transactions and incidentally, uh, you know, raise the fees. It has achieved probably uh, to a certain extent the, uh, the purpose uh, that it was designed to. So it has definitely, at least for a while, decrease the fees and the activity of these bots on the public Ethereum chain, but that does not uh, without consequences. Because obviously now what you're left with, and, and, and this, uh, this Flashbot idea, this sort of Flashbot protocol, if you will, has been adopted widely by pretty much all of the Ethereum miners. I think last time I checked, there was like an 85% uptake. It could very well be 100% uptake uh, at this point. And obviously the danger here is you've got a very permission network so to be able to participate into the flashbot network or, or protocol if you will it is completely permission and it is also a um, an obvious sort of central point of failure i mean th this whole thing is ultimately uh, hosted probably on aws servers and so you have this parallel sort of mempool that's running on Ethereum, that's managing a significant amount of the Ethereum uh, current sort of transaction economy, but that is fully controlled by a certain group of individuals. Obviously they'll say like their incentive is for that network to keep running and and and, and be running in a sort of, in a way that's beneficial to, um, to the Ethereum ecosystem, but it's in, it'll be interesting to see how that scale, it, it, that scales in the future. Now, obviously, they've came up uh, and they're still working on, on other potential solution to MEV. Uh, there's been talk of, of trying to make that network a little less permission and integrating it with, for example, Intel as a GX uh, sort of secure enclave. So as to make it a little more, I, I believe, so as to make it a little more difficult for people to game uh, that network. Uh, so that there would sort of be a, a cost uh, of attack, uh, is my understanding. And... While that might be a sort of viable solution, you also have a problem where, I mean, it seems to me like it's the long running story with Ethereum is that they uh, put forward solution sometimes in the haste because they uncover a problem that needs fixing now. And by putting together that solution, they don't fully understand or study or care about the long-term incentives or the long-term consequences of these solutions. And by implementing those, then later down the road, they realize that they've only created more problems. Right. Yeah. Uh, I think generally the con the consensus within uh, the Ethereum community, or at least some of the some of its leading researchers, is that MEV is something that will be present that will be present possibly forever. There's no sort of catch-all solution to it. So this is definitely something that they'll have to uh, deal with 
for the foreseeable term, future. Yeah. yeah. So then I guess is the argument essentially then that it causes this centralization, like, I guess, bringing it back to what's the problem, right? So I think centralization of the cryptocurrency is obviously an issue. And I think maybe this is a good point here, just to kind of spell out in 2017, there were big debates being had about Bitcoin and whether there would be centralization pressure. Maybe you could spell out some of those, even uh, some of the different arguments I heard where, for example, that minor, the additional latency caused by larger blocks would cause miners to have a centralizing pressure because they might want to be in the same location, which again is another centralizing force. Did you want to elaborate on any of those ideas in the Bitcoin context for say 2017 before we then compare it back to what's going on in Ethereum? Yeah, so that that was definitely obviously one of the concerns uh, back then. There was a lot of work that was done in sort of trying to reduce that that latency. And Bitcoin also had its sort of also had for a while its its sort of parallel broadcasting network for blocks. Although the transaction broadcasting was still done on chain at the you know L1 level, but certainly yes, as as blocks would have increased uh, in size, then it would have created this this issue where less well connected miners. Could have had their um, their blocks orphaned because of the lack of better connectivity, and so it would obviously favor larger pools, and so it would ultimately lead to consolidation of this uh, hashing power. The obvious uh, sort of other danger there was that by creating these larger blocks, you would make it sort of uh, resource intensive for validating nodes for the individual that are running the validating nodes, and, and thereby again sort of compounding decentralization by making it more and more difficult. Obviously, the, I guess the small blockers won that debate uh, and we're well past that nowadays. I think it's pretty well recognized that the way we're, we'll be able to scale is through layers. The, the, the situation is, although not entirely dissimilar, uh, certainly a little different uh, in terms of how these all how MEV and, and the staking derivatives thing uh, would play out. So maybe to introduce uh, the staking derivatives idea, if you want me to go there, is yeah, sure. So obviously, with with Ethereum, uh, considering or considering probably actively uh, moving towards the proof of stake implementation. It's not clear exactly when they'll get there. It seems like it's getting pushed back every other month, but that's ultimately their target and. Um, the idea originally with staking is that you would uh, it would require a sort of minimal capital amount of 32 Ethereum for an individual to be able to uh, to stake. And by staking, what we mean is that you essentially lock up, quote unquote, your your capital into this contract that allows you to effective. What they're trying to do is replicate the the concept of, of proof of work, really, but using capital rather than proof of work energy expenditure. And so by staking, by allocating your capital to those staking contracts, then you get the opportunity to validate those blocks, those transactions of the network. And of course, because of that, you, are, you earn uh, a reward. Uh, the reward being the issuance and, uh, and the fees that come from the transaction activity on the network. Now, uh, this obviously created this situation where it, it, you know, it, it's obviously be, it obviously becomes a little prohibitive for uh, for staking to be done if um, you absolutely need 32 ETH, which is what about hundred thousand dollars at this point in time. And uh, so people came up with ideas to sort of democratize, I guess, um, the, the staking activity. And one of these ideas are just 
staking pools. Staking pools are the first order uh, solution where just as with mining pools in, in a certain way, whatever amount of ETH you have available for staking, you contribute uh, contribute to uh, essentially a fund pool of funds. And uh, the this pool of fund is uh, sort of maintained by a, an infrastructure uh, solution uh, that runs their own validators. And so they'll use whatever stake, uh, whatever ETH you have available for, for you to be able to participate in this activity. But people... Um, Obviously, Ethereum being Ethereum, people quickly wanted to to see if they could come up with a sort of more, again, quote unquote, decentralized solution to this. And I, I think last, I mean, it's probably been a work in progress for for a couple of years. But what they came, uh, what they came up with is this idea of this decentralized uh, staking protocol. So you actually have a contract that effectively uh, does the same uh, thing that a, I guess, a centralized staking pool would do. And so that they collect your Ethereum into this contract and they allow for anyone to be staking. Uh, probably the most important or popular implementation of this in Ethereum is the Lido protocol. And so the Lido protocol as in, on one hand, yes, this, uh, this staking contract that people can contribute to, but they also are governed by a the Lido DAO, the Lido Decentralized Autonomous Organization. The Lido DAO has their own token, which is used for governance purpose, uh, which allows the uh, participants of this Lido ecosystem to sort of vote on proposals. But most importantly, the uh, Lido sort of governance organization is the one to to effectively select who are the validators that are sort of allowed to use the capital that is staked to uh, the Lido contract and distribute that for for staking. So there are several validators right now, not clear exactly what the amount is, but certainly half a dozen, uh, half a dozen dozen that are, uh, but they're effectively, you know, handpicked by this DAO organization. Obviously, we'll, we'll get into how this becomes uh, very challenging uh, going forward. But this is generally the idea, right, is that you uh, allow for dem- uh, democratization uh, of staking by uh, enabling anyone in the Ethereum ecosystem to be able to do this. Now, one of the other innovation that they've, that they've brought about is this idea of the staking derivatives. And the staking derivatives is, is a probably a game changer, really, in terms of the security infrastructure and the security dynamics of, uh, of Ethereum. Because the initial idea with staking is that you would freeze up your capital and this, this Ethereum that is uh, staked uh, into uh, validating contracts obviously cannot be used for other purposes. Uh, it is, quote unquote, dead capital. And so... Uh, they quickly realized, though, that if you have this contract, then you can use an Ethereum that is, uh, that is uh, staked into this contract and issue a one or one derivatives. So they have this wrapped token that whoever deposits into the Lido contract gets in return uh, one, they call it STE. And so this unlocks the liquidity. Obviously, this allows for people to not only participate in the staking, but then get a token in return that they can use to gamble away and, and use for all the DeFi purposes so as to try and, you know, compound the yield that, that they're getting. So it's almost like they want to, it's like having your cake and eating it too. And because it, the craze is all about yield and DeFi is just, it's like fiat degenerate gambling, but just put into the crypto world. That's, yeah, that's like a weird way that this whole thing is growing, isn't it? 
Well, it is. And I think, well, from my reading, I think a lot of people sort of anticipated those those contracts, those taking derivatives to come along. Uh, it seems pretty clear to me that from day one, probably at least the smartest people in the room sort of realized that there were um, very real challenges to this. Because in a certain way, you know, there's been this talk of, there's always been this talk with proof of stake of this sort of nothing at stake issue. And uh, this really reintroduces this, uh, I mean, staking derivatives really reintroduces this problem where, you know, it really brings down the actual cost of uh, staking on the system to the extent that they are potentially effectively negligible. And so... A lot of the security uh, design that was put into proof of stake, a lot of the sort of economic, I think, reasoning that was done initially always sort of accounted for the fact or always sort of made the assumption that, you know, only a certain portion of people in the Ethereum ecosystem would be willing to stake because obviously because it freezes up their capital. So you have this narrative that like only the strongest bulls will will be staking uh, and whatnot. And this sort of really flips the scribble on its head where you've created this opportunity for practically every single person, every single Ethereum token owner to be staking. And I think it's not well understood what the full outcome uh, of this are from, from sort of a, a game, game theoretical uh, standpoint. But I guess ultimately this realization I guess this combination uh, of this taking derivative incentive, this dynamic, and what I had previously also observed in, in the MEV uh, sort of challenge really sort of reinforced my belief that it was uh, inevitable, it seems to me, that proof of stake could potentially even be more centralizing than even sort of its strongest opponent would have, uh, would have anticipated. And we can go into <laughs> how exactly that, that would play out. So yeah, so proof of stake could be even more centralizing than its strongest opponent may uh, may have argued. So what are I guess some of the consequences of that staking centralization? Uh, there are a lot. There there obviously there are a lot. And so maybe before we uh, we we go into exactly how um, or the consequences of it, uh, I think it's worth highlighting again how these two these two concepts the sort of compound uh, the interaction yeah. aspect exactly. And so starting with MEV, the problem with MEV is that it is a very, very, very specialized activity. I've explained, uh, I've sort of laid out the case before that uh, as more applications come around in the Ethereum ecosystem, there's always new MEV opportunities that are being created. And for someone to stay on top of these MEV opportunities, it is a full-time job. It is, it is an activity that requires deep knowledge of the Ethereum protocol in a way that very, very, very few people in the Ethereum ecosystem actually have. And so uh, I think I, I put this, this quote in the, the original thread where um, it, it was an excerpt uh, of a comment that Vitalik made on an article uh, on Medium that uh, sort of decried or at least complained about uh, the sort of MEV situation. And I mean, maybe to quote him, but uh, Vitalik himself said, I mean, the extraction is naturally a highly high economies of scale and centralization pro activity. It involves writing and constantly maintaining advanced software. It's arguably even more high fixed cost than mining itself and definitely more so than proof of stake. So obviously um, given that fact and given that MEV ultimately nowadays 
is what makes the difference between a hugely profitable uh, Ethereum miner and a less so pr profitable one. And so the, the, um, the actors that are, will become experts at MEV and that will have the resources to constantly reinvest into this MEV activity will ultimately come out on top. And that will be even more true. And so one of my reasoning is that will be even more true um, in uh, a proof of stake uh, uh, ecosystem. Um, and one of the reason why that is so is that the larger, the larger your stake is, uh, in Ethereum, uh, the more opportunity you have to, uh, be able to capture this MEV. Uh, there's this sort of variance concept where, you know, the, uh, the larger, uh, obviously the larger miners have an opportunity to, uh, create uh, more, more blocks. There's this sort of randomized, uh, within proof of stake, there's this sort of randomized selection of validators that are adding blocks to the chain. Obviously, if you have more stake, then you're more likely to get picked, and then you're more likely to capture more MEV. And also within proof of stake, when they actually delegate the sort of attestation, when they actually delegate the, the block producers within a certain round, if you will, there's not only one validator that's selected. There's a, a couple of validators that are picked within a certain round. And if you actually, if there's relations between those, um, those validators, there's opportunity for them. Uh, there's this sort of uh, opportunity that's created within proof of stake for them uh, that's not present within the, the current proof of work ecosystem that allows for them to coordinate around sort of MEV opportunities that can be uh, executed across different blocks. And so it, it really, so it really introduces uh, sort of a new, not necessarily attack vector. I guess some some people wouldn't be happy for me to uh, to call it uh, that way. But certainly, uh, ultimately, a, a way for larger centralized validators that are able to coordinate between each other to to capture more MEV than their con uh, their than their counterpart. And that is especially true within a staking derivatives environment. Let me just try and explain that and make sure I've understood that. So the idea is there's this MEV. So this idea that by a block producer or a miner selectively reordering transactions, they could potentially benefit themselves by also concurrently going and doing trades on some of these quote unquote decentralized exchanges that uh, allow them to front run the Ethereum transaction you know, user at that point. And so what you're saying here is also that given the way the system is set up, it's very possible and maybe we could argue even probable that those block producers might then start collaborating with each other to, to start doing multi-block MEV opportunities or taking advantage of those, correct? That is correct. And obviously, the obvious argument, at least from Ethereum prop proponent, would be, well, this would be detrimental to the, uh, to the system. This would, uh, you know... Uh, potentially bring the value uh, of the asset down if if people uh, if, if you know the the block validators do uh, perform those kinds of activities in in a way that's too malicious. But I think there's a there's a very fine line between sort of the profit incentive that is made available by these opportunities and the way um, or at least the extent to which the sort of ecosystem, the Ethereum ecosystem, is willing to tolerate it. And it's it's been increasingly blurry, uh, and there's a lot of debate on both uh, between some people in that ecosystem as to whether or not uh, even just something like flashbots is uh, flashbots, sorry, is is actually 
beneficial or, or detrimental uh, to the ecosystem. But yeah, I mean, overall, the underlying bottom line is that the larger the, the, the larger validator, validator you are, the more stake you have within the proof of stake, the more MEV opportunities you capture, especially if you have, you know, if you're sort of able to coordinate or collaborate or, or if your uh, staking infrastructure is created in partnership with, uh, you know, people that are very close to the protocol. And that's what we're seeing play out. Lido, for example, Lido, for example, one of the main proponents of the Lido protocol is Paradigm. Paradigm is pretty well known, at least within the Ethereum ecosystem. They're not as active uh, in Bitcoin, although they do, to their credit, I believe, sponsor a couple of Bitcoin de developers. But all that to say is Paradigm actually bought 10% stake into the, uh, the Lido DAO. And Paradigm uh, has hired has within its team, you know, some of the most proficient Ethereum de developers, some of the people that are closest to the core protocol. And so uh, this allows them the ability to very, have a very uh, deep understanding of MEV and the opportunities that might arise. And so you have, uh, you know, this introduces to proof of stake a sort of uh, dynamic where you're not only concerned with your staking infrastructure and maintaining those computers on top of which the uh, staking contract uh, run, uh, but you need to uh, spend capital on this expertise of MEV. And obviously this capital might not be available to everyone, but the scarcity is very, is very much in the, in the resources that are available, the people that are actually able to write uh, and execute the code that can capture this MEV. Uh, so yeah. that's the, so that's the centralization dynamic for uh, for MEV, and then the relationship that this has with uh, staking derivatives is basically that by allowing for a staking derivatives contract to be issued um, in exchange for staking your Ethereum, you create a network effect, create a liquidity network effect, um, and so it is not beneficial for uh, people that are interested in those staking derivatives uh, to be using derivatives for different providers. Obviously, if you have uh, so that or maybe to just to jump back a little bit, like how the does the uh, staking uh, ecosystem looks like nowadays? Well, to be perfectly fair, Lido itself, the protocol is still a small fraction of the uh, Ethereum that's currently staked into sort of this uh, the, the, the beacon chain they call is this sort of pre-merge uh, proof of stake contract. So it's still a very uh, small fraction. It is the fastest growing pool of funds for uh, for Ethereum. I, I believe that I've read uh, that in the last 30 days, 50% of the ETH that were staked into this uh, beacon chain uh, were actually staked into the Lido protocol. And But nevertheless, uh, right now, probably the most significant entities are uh, exchanges. Kraken does a lot of staking. They have a significant portion. And if Kraken were to offer their own staking derivatives, um, then there's this situation obviously where uh, the, the staking derivatives from Lido and the staking derivatives from Kraken, they're not fungible. And so no one is uh, better off by uh, using those different derivatives. It's, it's, uh, these derivatives are essentially becoming the money uh, that is available within the economy for Ethereum. So 
uh, obviously liquidity begets liquidity. And so there's this very, very, very strong uh, network, uh, network effect incentive playing out. And if that holds true, and if the um, Lido, um, the Lido protocol through their through their proficiency uh, and their um, their expertise, you know, in being able to um, to capture the MEV, become the sort of de facto uh, staking protocol for Ethereum, then there's very little reason for um, anyone that's willing to stake to use anything other than Lido. Um, and so I, it is my feeling that this sort of growth in Lido and for people that are holding Lido token, that's probably very bullish. Um, but um, there's, it seems to me like there's this very, very strong incentive for people that are interested in uh, or all of the capital that is available for staking to effectively converge uh, with time into the Lido contract because it has all the benefits of staking. It has all the benefits of sort of ecosystem integration where they have, uh, you know, they allow you to uh, use your ledger to be able to stake. They have all these integrations with all of, all of the DeFi applications, uh, but ultimately, you know, their, uh, their biggest value proposition is the liquidity that is created by their um, staking derivatives. Yeah, interesting stuff. And so it's like, it reminds me of how um, our friends Marty and Matt over at Rabbit Hole Recap, they often talk about the centralizing pressure that proof of stake has even in the exchanges, because the exchanges might be holding lots of coins and giving incentives for their customers to leave their coins on the exchange so that exchanges staking does better. And so in what you're outlining here is like that on steroids, right? Because it's that another level, because now it's staking derivatives, which causes even more of a centralization pressure. So yeah, would, would you say that's an accurate summary then or? Definitely. And I think originally that was one of the concerns, right? And that's how people were seeing uh, the, the proof of stake centralization playing out is obviously you've got these massive amounts of ETH on, on centralized exchanges and, and they're able to sort of offer that yield to their customer without their customer having to do much of anything. And it's not obvious, at least, that um, some of the capital would necessarily leave uh, those exchanges, but I feel it feels to me like the incentives are, are very much there for them to do so. And and obviously, these exchanges, one of their biggest downside is that they're not able to offer. They're certainly able to offer um, sort of a similar derivative uh, in in the sense uh, that they uh, can allow, at least even just within their own exchange, for people to have. Um, that ETH collateral in the staking in the staking contract, but potentially offer that derivative uh, product on exchange. They could also have their own uh, on-chain token, um, uh, but obviously, it's not as um, quote-unquote trustless as uh, the the staking derivatives that that that's offered by a an on-chain contract such as um, such as Lido. Something yeah. else also that's um, that's that's very interesting. Uh, and sort of, uh, it just, it really just only dawned on me in the last couple of days um, it, it, that compounds the centralization effect it, is that, you know, you have, uh, I think it's always been very known that this notion that uh, the largest holders of this, uh, of this staking ecosystem, uh, you know, this sort of rich get richer uh, effect where they only have to sit on their coins and then they continue to earn that yield without having to do much of anything. 
that's actually compounded by offering that derivatives because then you unlock that capital that was originally uh, set to be sort of dead capital and you allow those people to use that capital and go back to the DeFi ecosystem and you know potentially lend that uh, that capital on on uh, things like Compound, uh, which is a DeFi app, and and obviously the more capital you have available to lend, the more profit, the more yield you earn, and by and so by the same effect, the more the more that profit you get, the more you can reinvest into staking, the largest your um, share of the pie grows, um, and so yeah, it, it's 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 a very 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 I mean. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I can't uh, claim that I uh, predict the future, but I think there's a strong case to make that ultimately this all converges into a lot of the capital uh, being, and this is not only my opinion. Um, uh, funny enough, the people at Paradigm have actually put up a uh, blog post in the last few months that outlined this uh, sort of decentralized um, staking protocol infrastructure, and they make the exact same case. They make the exact same case that there's network effect at play that could very well lead to up to almost 100% of the Ethereum being staked within the Lido contract. And they make that case, I think, without at least in this article, without fully sort of acknowledging, acknowledging the sort of systemic risk that this introduces. And one of the ones that I think they're aware of, they're definitely aware of it because they've just put forth um, a couple of weeks back a, a new article claiming how um, they would address this problem. And the problem is that if you have a majority of the stake that is uh, allocated to the Lido contract, then the people that own the actual DAO token, the Lido uh, governance token, are effectively the ones that are handpicking the validators for the entire Ethereum ecosystem. Right, uh, and people, that can be a problem, right? That is a massive problem because this introduces even regulatory risk because the, some of the owners of, of this DAO contract are public-facing uh, entities, and, and so by voting and by you know by by voting using their their capital, uh, they're able to decide who gets to potentially ultimately validate the Ethereum chain. Um, and so, to be fair, again, they've acknowledged that risk. They uh, they claim to have a plan to sort of uh, to sort of diminish uh, this um, this control that the DAO would have on on uh, the uh, validator uh, selection. Uh, they claim that they will use on-chain metrics to create a reputation system across the validators uh, that will then sort of make it almost permissionless. Uh, I think if it works out, it's a pretty decent idea. But from my perspective, it's not within the incentives of the DAO token holders to enable that. Because if uh, you create such a permissionless system, uh, then the actual DAO loses all of its purpose because the government, the governance ultimately of, of that protocol, the value that is, is, it is essentially this curation of, of the validators. But then when you put uh, this curation out of the hands of the DAO token, what's the value there? Why would uh, the validators, this group of validators decide that, hey, we don't want to pay any more fees to the uh, DAO. Why would we share our revenue of the pie with people that are effectu effectively 
providing almost little value at all. And so they might, and, and, and given obviously that these smart contracts are all public, anyone can copy and paste them. You know, you've seen that with Uniswap and with uh, the, the Sushi centralized exchanges. Like why would uh, the validators decide, hey, we don't need the DAO anymore. Let's switch to a new protocol and then we'll implement this sort of permissionless curation system. And, and then all of the DAO token holders are, are left with nothing, uh, with something that's worth nothing. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm, it's not clear to me that it's incentives compatible. Back to the show in a moment. Have you thought about upgrading your security to multi-signature? Unchained Capital are creating multi-signature vaults and you can set yours up really easily. You can go to unchained.com and bring two hardware wallets and set it up for yourself. Or if you need a help, they've got a concierge service. That This concierge service can take you from having never held your own keys before to actually having your own multi-signature vault. And they've got different versions of this package where you can have the hardware wallets sent to you or you can bring your own hardware wallets and they will do a call with you and get you set up. And this is a great option to remove those single points of failure. This can also give you more peace of mind because you don't have to worry that just losing one thing uh, makes you lose all your coins. Now you have some redundancy. So go to unchanged-capital.com concierge, get $50 off with the promo code Levera. My favorite hardware wallet is the cold card by coinkite.com. The cold card is a specialized Bitcoin hardware device, hardware wallet device that you can use to uh, generate private keys or store your private keys and sign a Bitcoin transaction. And you can sign those Bitcoin transactions using a micro SD card, meaning you never have to actually plug your cold card into a computer. So don't be worried. There's lots of instructional videos. There's ways to do it. And you can use it easily with wallets like Spectre Desktop or Sparrow or Electrum or even Blue Wallet. So go to coinkite.com and use the code Levera to order yours. And lastly, don't forget about doing your backups. Could you recover your Bitcoins if your house went up on fire? This is why you need metal seed backup products like the Cypher Grid from CypherSafe.io. This new product coming out is the best value in the industry. You get everything you need for $59. It's BIP39 compatible, so the standard 12 or 24 word seeds, seed words, and it's got privacy by default. The two plates are facing each other. You can lock this one with a padlock. You get a, you get a tamper evidence seal and uh, an automatic center punch provided also. And... This product is fireproof, rustproof, and waterproof. So if you need yours, go to cyphersafe.io and use the code Levera to get a discount when you're ordering your one. Back to the show. Yeah, so fundamentally then, it just it points towards more and more centralization in the Ethereum system. And so if the Ethereum validators end up being handpicked, what are the consequences of this? Yeah, well... Obviously, at face value, some of the consequences are, are pretty obvious. You have this organization, like I said, that um, it, is, it effectively devolves uh, Ethereum into um, what is essentially called a sort of a DPoS system, a um, delegated proof of stake system. A delegated meaning that those who, uh, you know, those who hold the coin actually get to vote on who is uh, validating the chain. Uh, we have some experience with uh, these DPoS systems. They're not very decentralized. Uh, they're, they're, they, the target that is put on the uh, token holders is a lot more obvious and a lot more pervasive uh, than they are uh, within a sort of, uh, or at, le- at least the current sort of proof of stake implementation uh, of Ethereum. And one of the danger, one of the main danger probably is that this very strong potentially challenges the claims of Ethereum uh, with regards to their monetary policy. So it's not ultrasound money? Well, 
I mean, exactly. Like they already have this, um, you know, this history of uh, switching their monetary policy around uh, in in different ways. Uh, now, their claim is that uh, they always have targeted a sort of more deflationary uh, issuance. Uh, they have this concept that they call the minimum viable issuance, which is sort of hand very hand wavy. Um, implementation of something that has actual no inputs. There's, you know, it cannot be codified. It's something very, very vague. Uh, but obviously, their target and the narrative that they want to entertain is that you will end up with a system that's deflationary. And uh, their, at least their argument lately has been that um, this. It has been that this EIP one five five nine that has been introduced is you know the late the last change they'll make it's probably the argument is that the monetary policy of ethereum will cal calcify after this uh, because we have all the tools that are needed for us to probably go into the long term and have an incentive compatible monetary system um, the problems that i see with that obviously is that if you concentrate the validator set especially if you allow for most people potentially a hundred uh, percent of the people in Ethereum um, to be able to uh, to, to validate uh, the more people uh, the more people that are validating um, the less stake they actually the less uh, the less issuance the less rewards each individual player actually uh, actually um, is rewarded with and so you could come to a point uh, in in that sort of uh, dynamic uh, down the road where the validators aren't too happy anymore uh, with their uh, rewards. Uh, they might get to claim that the issuance is not enough for them to, incent to be incentivized to uh, actually um, you know, stake. Uh, they probably are earning more stake uh, within potentially DeFi activity. Um, and so they will say, well, you know, we're in uh, this, uh, by consequence, the Lido a uh, set of validators that potentially is very centralized will say, hey, guys, we've got to flip the monetary insurance uh, around a little bit. Like, you know, let's increase that uh, by a couple percentage point. Like, what's the big deal, right? Uh, you, you're going to incentivize us to continue staking and, and everyone will be happy. And if the history of Ethereum is to be trusted, I guess, it's not clear that um, by the time this happened, and the scale at which the Ethereum community will be, it's not clear that uh, everyone will sort of raise up and work against that uh, because there's a very real danger that you're effectively raising up uh, against the overloads uh, overlords of, of the system. By the time the validators become that big, especially if it's concentrated uh, against such a small set of validators or even just a single protocol, it becomes a very risky business to say like, hey, just, you know, F off. Um, like you're not going to get what you want um, because then, uh, you know, then they might decide, the validators might decide, okay, well, we're not going to get the, the issuance uh, change, but then watch for your um, sort of MEV, watch for your transactions, you know? Like we're going to be uh, doing, like we we had previously sort of avoided uh, doing uh, detrimental MEV activities, but we need more revenues. So we're now we're going to do whatever we need uh, to get those revenues. Um, so it's a challenge. 
And also, yeah. like one of the things that the validators do, one of the things that uh, that is an obvious uh, downside to Ethereum that's always been uh, very clear to me is that the miners in Ethereum actually control the block size. Uh, they get uh, and what so they what they call the gas limit um, is effectively decided uh, by uh, by the miners. Um, historically, it's been uh, something that was done in coordination with the Ethereum Foundation, the Ethereum core devs. The, the Ethereum core devs would say like, okay, we feel that it's safe to increase the block size a little bit, and the miners would be compliant and say, okay, let's do that. Um, but then if you, uh, and to, to my knowledge, this is not going to change uh, with, with proof of stake. And so obviously, if you have, again, this usually centralized entity, um, that control the block size, like what's to stop them from increasing, increasing, and increasing uh, the, the the gas limit, thereby not only concentrating the validator set, but also it's important to uh, to remember that uh, although there are valid these validators within Ethereum, there's also supposed to be this sort of dynamic disbalance of power where you also have the Ethereum nodes, the validating nodes, the ones that supposedly everyone is able to run. Obviously, we all know that that's a big challenge within Ethereum itself already at this point. Uh, and but down the road, um, you know, this um, uh, the the validators the validators are giving the opportunity to blur this sort of to sort of uh, diminish this balance of power and concentrate uh, their control even more by slowly, slowly, slowly uh, pushing out at the edge the the validator set so that. Uh, I mean, down the line, who knows? Maybe they'll be the only ones, like the validators themselves will be the only one able to run Ethereum nodes, at which point there's effectively no uh, no distribution of power. It is, you yeah. have this one single entity that, that controls all the rules uh, within the Ethereum. Yeah, it, it just seems to me like it's recreating the fiat world. It's just recreating all the problems that we don't like about fiat. And it's just, well, I mean, look, the ETH, the, the ETH huffers might have some counter argument here, so but fine, whatever. Um, and now one other idea as well. So related to this centralization idea, what about in the case of some big failure? If there were to be some big systemic failure or some kind of you know network split, could you elaborate a little bit on that and what the centralization of Ethereum might mean for that? Well, uh, I think that's one of the biggest downside of, of proof of stake, and it's it's funny. Uh, this this topic of uh, uh, this topic came up um, last night. Uh, so you had Dennis Porter had a bit of a debate with um, David Hoffman uh, from from Bankless from the Bankless podcast, and um, the, this exact conversation came along, and um, it was a little astounding to hear um, uh, David's reply and. Effectively, for proof of stake, there's no answer because if you dig a little bit into this entire concept, if you dig a little bit into uh, uh, the proof of stake implementation, it's it's sort of a weak. Um, they refer to it as weak subjectivity, so it doesn't actually secure uh, the past. It only really uh, secures um, the present, and so at a certain point in time, if the network forks, and especially if the network splits. The longer the network split, the harder it is uh, for the network participant to be able to ascertain exactly, you know, which which chain is the valid one. And so, by that effect, if ever this happen this happens, 
And obviously, so, so David's answer to that basically yesterday was, well, the community will just get together and we'll make a decision as to which chain is the valid one. Well, first off, obviously, if, you, if you're going to do that, you need to be validating the chain. You need to be actively running a node, which might get uh, further and further more difficult uh, down the line with Ethereum. But also, like, and I guess this is one of the answers that comes along every time that an issue is brought, uh, is brought up with Ethereum is... The community will figure it out. Everyone is uh, working within Ethereum's best interests, and so its participants will figure it out. And it's very obvious to someone that sort of studied the, 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 these systems and un actually understand why they were created in the first place is that because the concept of community does not scale, you cannot reach, uh, there becomes a certain point in time where the community becomes too big. It's like saying, you know, if the internet breaks, well, the community is going to figure it out. You know, who exactly is the, who's the uh, internet community here? Like it, it will start losing value. Uh, sorry, it will start uh, losing, losing sense uh, in, in the future. It is already sort of, uh, it's already happening. Uh, you know, even within the Bitcoin ecosystem, like you have different different factions people are getting uh, interested or excited about certain projects people some people are not and that's good that's healthy that's decentralization playing out but decentralization ultimately brings uh, about an inability to coordinate uh and so obviously then what happens if something uh, if a split happens within uh, proof of stake well since there's no sort of uh, objective uh, measure of, uh, that you have with proof of work, with the weight of the chain, if there's no objective measure of what is the valid, which one is the valid chain, uh, then it all comes down to a sort of, you know, popularity contest. It becomes uh, who holds the most ETH gets to decide who are the biggest validators again. They get to decide which one is the, the valid chain. And it doesn't matter if, uh, if it isn't. Basically, if they're the provider of all the infrastructure, you really have no choice but to uh, play along with them because otherwise you're left with a chain that has very little security or very little actual capital dedicated to them. So that's that's a major concern. I don't know how to get around this one. Uh, I think the, it'll become increasingly obvious that the community answer is not going to cut it. Uh, and so, yeah. yeah. Especially if there's competing interests because... There might be people like okay, if if like supposedly if Ethereum is going to be the whole smart contracting so on, and there would be people on different sides of the argument saying, "Hey, I've lost this much money," and the other one would be saying, "No, I'm going to lose all this money." And then it's going to be like, "Well, whose interest do we protect? Does the community decide?" And then it just it, what are they even protecting at the end of the day? Exactly, and I think it's interesting that you bring that you bring up this argument because or. From my perspective, we're seeing that split already sort of occurring um, in, in the Ethereum community where um, they've introduced this, this sound money narrative, this ultrasound money narrative, because they see how well it's working for Bitcoin. The number go up, that's working well. Uh, but on the other hand, you've got this dynamic right now where the actual original utility use case of Ethereum, you know, the ability for people to perform economic, economic activity on the chain through whatever DAP. DeFi app or whatever it is, it's become challenged uh, or challenging because of the fees on the network. 
Obviously, they'll claim that they have a solution to the to the fees on the network. But you're seeing this divergence already from people that are just interested in, you know, minting those NFTs, trading those NFTs around, uh, using those um, those those DeFi applications, speculating in, in such a way that uh, it it is becoming uneconomical to do so on the Ethereum chain. And so that is why you're seeing this emergence of these alternative alternative uh, like layer ones. Chain. Yeah. Binance Smart Chain, Solana, Polkadot, and all of that. And so you have this divergence in interest within the Ethereum community already of the, the sound money proponent. And for the sound money proponents to be uh, correct or for they, for they claim to be validated, you sort of need high fees. They, they really want higher fees because the higher fees they have, you know, the more Ethereum gets burned. And so the more deflationary it becomes. But then on the other hand, You've got these other guys that just want to be able to transact for as little fees as possible. They want their activity to be as efficient as possible. And so they'll gladly move their activity across different chains if it allows them to do that. And so, like you said, down the line, competing interests, what happens is if, if there's a fork, it's not clear that everyone will sort of reconcile together. So you might be left with ultimately two different chains. Yeah, and that's just not <laughs> that's not a winning outcome for them. And it, it potentially, like you, I think you were touching on this before, that it might be painting a regulatory target on the back of you know, Ethereum uh, companies and Ethereum entities as well. Definitely. I, I think there's a lot of ways you can conceive how this could happen. I think one of the obvious way, and I'm, you know, I'm not one for uh, supporting regulators to, uh, to attack uh, these networks because of course, yeah. uh, you don't want to play favorites. Uh, obviously, if they start... Um, being adversarial towards one network, nothing's stopping them from being adversarial towards Bitcoin. But the target is just there uh, for, for Ethereum. And it's increasingly the case if you, know, if you consider the DAO organization. Uh, because it's very clear to me that the DAO token is obviously a security. It is uh, inarguably a security. It is something that allows uh, a claim on future rewards that is offered by, uh, I mean, it is offered by a ultimately in the beginning centralized team. Of course, now that's the whole idea. You know, they they sort of uh, distribute this token within the uh, ecosystem, and then they get to claim that oh well, it's centralized. There's no centralized issuer, so it's not really security. I don't think that's a very convincing arguments for the regulators. But ultimately, even if it's not a matter of of securities, you expose through through these organizations through those validators. You know, the validators in Ethereum, these are keys, uh, these are, uh, this, this is capital that's held uh, on servers that needs to be online 100% of the time, 24-7, because if there is any downtime to their activity, there's immediate uh, repercussions for them. They get, uh, there's this concept of slashing. If you're a validator and you go offline and somehow that has an effect uh, on the network, uh, well, then you, you, get, uh, you get to pay for that. So they need, so, so obviously then it, this entire infrastructure, it becomes a little hard to uh, be able to manage that without putting a regulatory target on your back. They'll, some people will say that it's the same for, for mining. Obviously, mining being large operations, they're subject to uh, sort of government enforcement. You, we've seen that with, with China. And it's going to be interesting to see how exactly it plays out. But the one major difference really is that with mining, well, the government might come along and say, uh, okay, well, you've got to burn your mining uh, facility down. I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do. 
ultimately, yeah, obviously the miners are affected. The, the, this exact miner is affected. Um, potentially, the security to a certain extent of the network is affected. Uh, but ultimately, you know, alt- other miners will, will come up to pick up the slack. The problem with uh, the Ethereum staking nodes is that you hold the private keys there. And if, if this gets compromised, and that's why some of the arguments about uh, potential proof of stake attacks from the validators, the argument is always that, well, uh, you know, like miners, they don't have the incentive to attack the network. And so they'll play along and they'll be, they'll be nice to everyone. But the problem is that if you paint a regulatory or sort of a, a adversarial target um, on, on your Ethereum staking nodes, well, if someone comes along, not only can they burn down your infrastructure, they can actually steal, you know, they can actually compromise your private key, at which point they control directly the capital. And again, they can sit on that capital perpetually, sort of reinforcing their control, uh, their, their control over Ethereum. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's it's it's pretty concerning stuff. For, well, it should be very concerning stuff for any uh, ETH person or proponent. Uh, and so I think to contrast with Bitcoin as well, because obviously this is a Bitcoin show and I think the idea is to give people some context or give them some ideas on what are the differences there to understand how is Bitcoin structured differently. So maybe one area would be to contrast with Bitcoin miners. And so obviously Bitcoin is openly a proof of work system. Do you want to outline any differences there? Yeah, well, there are very major differences, and this comes back to to, to what I just uh, I just said. Is there's this notion of, um, especially true, you know, you said the exact uh, same thing earlier, especially true with uh, staking derivatives, where there's kind of a free lunch uh, dynamic playing out with with staking, where uh, you know you capture this capital over time. You might already have this capital from, you know, ICO days, like how much percentage of the Ethereum that's been allocated to certain entities and that they've been sitting on uh, since uh, essentially the ICO. And not only probably have they been sitting on them, but this, this was essentially free capital for them to down the line leverage during the, the ICO boom, the DeFi boom. So obviously you have this concentration of uh, this concern about the concentration of capital. And what happens is that the way staking is designed is obviously that you have no expenditure uh, to maintain that validating infrastructure. You sit on your capital, again, increasingly true with the derivatives. You sit on your capital and you earn you you earn more uh, rewards. It's a bit of a it, it's a bit of a cantillion effect uh, at, at play, really, and something that Bitcoiners will be uh, obviously very familiar with. But like you said, it it really creates a very strong parallel between Ethereum as it is designed uh, to, to to turn into and uh, the fiat system. And the obvious difference, uh, as you point out, is the permissionless aspect of uh, of uh, the proof of work. Uh, we've seen that throughout its history. You know, the biggest miners at a certain point in time are uh, the biggest miners at a certain point in time. If you uh, if you look at the ecosystem four years uh, afterward in the future, they might not even exist anymore. 
they, you know, like there was this entity back in 2013 or something like GASH. They, they controlled up to a point almost 51% of the actual ashing power. And you look at it, you look at it today. There's no GASH on the network anymore. And I mean, you had Bitmain uh, for for several, uh, like a very long period of Bitcoin history. Bitmain through uh, the uh, M pool, uh, they, they controlled a significant stake in the mining infrastructure. Well, who's the leading miner uh, nowadays? The le- leading mining pool? It's probably just it's probably moving um it's a little volatile obviously but recently foundry the 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 mining in- initiative from um from dcg from barry silbert and all actually be- became probably the first mining pool uh, the first american mining pool in bitcoin history to actually hold the number one place so it's a very competitive environment and it's increasingly the case given and it will actually sorry become increasingly the case in the future where when margins will probably go down nowadays miners are increasing uh, are enjoying a very 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 preferential sort of dynamic that's especially true because of what happened with uh, the mining shutdown in china where the difficulty went down so much the existing miners the margins are ridiculous it's not going to say the same for uh, for a long time. Down the road, as mining right. further and further professionalizes, the margin will be razor thin, and then so it becomes uh, it becomes a game of who's got the cheapest power, who's got the uh, who's got uh, the lowest capex, uh, who's got the most efficient machines, and so it's a situation that's always in flux, and so you never have this one miner that will have uh, a stake on the network that they can never replay be the, where no one can replace them so it's i mean it's to me it's a very it's a massive uh it's a very beneficial um aspect of, of proof of work it's actually how it thrives toward further and further decentralization is it becomes this very capitalistic system where people have to become you know specialized they have to continue to expand capital to be able uh to uh stay uh, in this game and earn the rewards of of, uh, of Bitcoin mining. Yeah, yeah, excellent point. So there, uh, essentially, it's you know, Bitcoin mining is a hyper competitive environment. You need to be, and it, and it's constantly changing. And as you were saying, it's constant. It's constant expenditure, right? So capital expenditure and operating expenditure because you're buying new machines. You're you're paying for power, you're paying for rack space, you're paying to, you know, to get all of the things done, to get maintenance, all of these aspects, it just requires constant expenditure and this constant competition happening. So that element is further decentralizing over time compared to Ethereum, which is further centralizing over time. And then even uh, with Bitcoin being formed with that 21 million from the start aspect, I think that's also an important point that, you know, people maybe are taking that a little bit for granted in this conversation and just thinking, oh, well, see, ultrasound money, I'll just make this money that's going down uh, to try and, you know, but ultimately the point is that you're not changing it. Like Bitcoin exactly. supply is not going to change. Exactly. I think this point cannot be emphasized enough. And I've actually lately been sort of uh, trying to uh, introduce this, um, this different uh, framing with regards to 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 Bitcoin, uh, to Bitcoin's distribution, because I think it's very valuable in terms of contrasting it with uh, Ethereum's monetary policy. Um, and, and the idea is that Bitcoin does not really have a monetary policy. Bitcoin 
was built with a distribution schedule. Satoshi decided there's going to be, you know, it's a first, it's, it's more of a, like a first principle design uh, axiom where Satoshi decides that there will be a hard cap, decides how many coins there will be in, uh, in Bitcoin uh, throughout its history, and then builds a distribution curve ar around that. And it's very important because it sort of, um, I, to me, it sort of really defeats the argument uh, that a lot of pe people in Ethereum make where, oh, well, Bitcoin has this monetary policy. You know, it's not guaranteed that in the future it'll work because what if the fee revenue is not too high, the fee revenue being sort of an uncertainty? Um, then it's likely that Bitcoin changes its monetary policy to adjust potentially with more inflation. But really, that's a non-starter. Like I said, it's a first principle design that Bitcoin was built with a hard cap. And the assumption is made that Bitcoin, if Bitcoin is to succeed, it will obviously, as the standard for transfer of value across the world, generate a ginormous amount of fees for miners to be incentivized to secure the network. And if those fees are not enough, if miners aren't incentivized, it is not a, um, it is not a reflection of the security model. It would simply be a reflection of Bitcoin failing to monetize. And so the assumption that, um, somehow there's a flaw in the security model and the fee-based security model is wrong. It is only true if you assume that Bitcoin fails. And if Bitcoin fails, it's not because, it, it's because as a store of value, it has failed to build a network effect and to, to monetize into the real world. Um, so you have this, uh, this fee-based market mechani mechanism. There's no uh, right amount of security. And that's another major misconception that people always make to me. Uh, you cannot say whether or not Bitcoin's got too much security or not enough security. It has just as much security as the market is willing to pay for. If the market uh, doesn't value Bitcoin to the extent of the hashing power that is active on the network, the value of the asset will go down. The miners will be disincentivized, will, will have to turn off their machine, or you know, people will be paying less fees. So it's not a problem. Like Again, this comes back to the argument. If there is low fees on the Bitcoin network and the people and miners aren't incentivized to mine, that's because ultimately there's low demand for Bitcoin. That's where it ends. And so um, to contrast that with, with Ethereum, um, you know, rather than having this distribution supply, um, this distribution schedule in Bitcoin, where there's a very strong commitment made to distribute the monetary uh, asset within the, uh, the the ecosystem and then let the market figure it out. Well, with Ethereum, like you said, they've made this sort of uh, commitment to a policy. And policies are not set in stone. Policies will depend on inputs, outputs from, from the system. And it seems, I mean, it's a bit bewildering to me. Uh, whenever you hear Ethereum, most Ethereum proponents really talk about this is that it, it's very much a fiat mindset. It's total Keynesian uh, uh, arguments really that are being made where 
they will adjust according uh, to uh, what the result of their experiment is. And again, they make the argument, well, if it doesn't work, the community will figure it out. But the whole point of Bitcoin, the whole point why we have this system is that we want to remove the human element from this conversation because the human element has failed us repeatedly through history. And so it doesn't matter that they claim that the current policy that they have is deflationary because they've created this opening for them to be able to change it down the line. And if it can be changed once, it can be changed, it can be changed twice and more and more and more. And the point I want to make also, and I think it's I think people might understand it better also, or at least to bring it back to Bitcoin, there's this uh, there's this notion, you know, um, there's this notion uh, that's always talked about of what if Bitcoin was built with a 1% sort of emission schedule, uh, an eventual 1% inflation schedule? Would it be as sound money as it is uh, without the, you know, the, with, uh, without the hard cap that it has today? And a lot of people make the argument, well, it doesn't matter. As long as the rules are set from the beginning, if it's 1%, 5%, whatever, the market will decide whether it, uh, it accepts this proposition. And it will, as long as it stays set and there's no historical precedent of it changing, then it will remain the same. I reject this notion very strongly. And the difference between zero and 1% or half a person is all the difference in the world. Because the 1% introduces a monetary policy, right? The 1% says that we cannot rely on market functions to be able to value the asset and the demand for the uh, transaction on the network to be able to secure it. So by introducing this monetary policy, then you open the Pandora's box for it to be able to. You create a sort of shelling point where it becomes easy to open an argument against down the line where people might feel, okay, well, you know, turns out 1% is not enough. We have an inflation rate, so might as well play around with it, you know? So I think it was a non-starter from the beginning. I think Satoshi very much understood that notion. And that's why the hard cap is fundamental to the design of Bitcoin. I, I believe it would not have garnered the adoption that it has up to this day without a hard cap. Yeah, yeah, really interesting stuff. And I think it's like um, it's like just that discovery of the number zero. And I think uh, Breedlove has written about this. Uh, it's kind of like this idea that even in maths, people weren't necessarily like it was like it was it was an interesting like article that he wrote about the discovery of the the number zero and i think it's that's 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 very related to the point that you're making um and so i guess summarizing things in terms of what's the future looking like for ethereum and its centralization what do you what do you see for that well one thing i see that people uh or bitcoiners won't really be happy about is i expect ethereum to uh stick around for uh, for a while because the way it's designed is sort of this same uh, a bit perverse design that this the fiat the, the fiat system is built right where you know that it's fundamentally flawed but it takes a while for these incentives to ultimately play out but what i see as the real danger and i think we're like we've discussed that and we we're, we're seeing that emerge and i'm i'm also observing People that are all that are usually like the flag bearers of uh, of Ethereum, uh, some of the influencers uh, within Ethereum, 
they're starting to have this um, sort of sneaking suspicion that they've put themselves between a rock and a hard place where, like I said, either they entertain the store value narrative, but if they fail to do that, and ultimately I think we agree that they'll, they will fail to do that, I don't think the market ultimately will buy this argument. They might sort of be able to entertain it for a while by, by, you know, having so much of these fees being burned, so much of the Ethereum being burned. So from a supply perspective, it's absolutely possible that for at least a short uh, amount of time, the supply becomes constrained and the number goes up and then, you know, they can play along with that narrative. But the issue is, is that if they actually, so if they fail to establish the sound money narrative, all they're left with is the utility narrative. All they're left with is the application layer narrative. And the application layer narrative is a death sentence because the application layer narrative is a technology narrative. And so when people you know, used to say in the past that uh, Bitcoin is the MySpace of money, I mean, we all know why that's wrong. But Ethereum, on the other hand, and it's funny, I think you had that, uh, I think you had, uh, who was it? I think it was Paul Tudor Jones uh, that was on Bloomberg uh, or who's the one? Anyways, one of the major uh, sort of TradFi uh, in, investor that actually owns uh, Bitcoin. He was making the exact same argument is that actually Ethereum might just be the MySpace of its ecosystem, you know, because if you're hanging on to technology, <laughs> if you're hanging on to technology as uh, your only value proposition, then that's a very, very sort of weak grounding, you know, because as we all know, uh, technology is improving, it's iterating every single day. And so you have also, you already have the Solanas of this world. You already have the Binance chain. Now people might say, well, uh, Binance chain, obviously very, very centralized. Uh, so potentially not a, a, a viable competitor to Ethereum. Same could be said about Solana. Well, who knows how... Who knows? Uh, sorry, it was Drunken Miller. It was Drunken Miller that made the exact uh, same uh, analogy to uh, uh, Drunken Miller. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, and so so there will be better better technology for the DeFi applications that will come along. There will be better technology for the NFTs application that will come along, and so this will inevitably dilute the market cap of of Ethereum because if they don't monetize, if the monetary premium is removed from their uh, value proposition, then it's who gets the, be who gets the be best tech. And as we all know, it's pretty much impossible to hold that lead forever. And if you create a precedent where you lose that lead, then you create a precedent where people will not be willing to invest. You know, it's the, uh, it's the flippening argument. Uh, and, and, and the Ethereum people think that the flippening argument would be good for them. But, but obviously, the, the, the obvious res response to that is that if, if Bitcoin can be flippant, then so can Ethereum. And at this point, who will be willing to trust their money into any of these systems because they might always be at risk of being flippant? And then you've got this sort of musical chair around where who's the last that will be left holding the bags? You know, it's not a very favorable scenario, especially if tech is your only value proposition. So ultimately, I see that. I see that as uh, how it plays out. I think Ethereum stays around for a while. I think yeah, it enjoys. Really I think it enjoys uh, some some temporary success for 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 probably several years. Uh, I mean, success in the terms of like you know money being tossed around and uh, and sort of 
uh, I mean, they're they're enjoying the same in a way. They're they're enjoying the same byproduct of the fiat system that as Bitcoin is, where there's so much liquidity around. Mm. So why wouldn't you, uh, you know, buy a picture of a rock for uh, five hundred thousand dollar for you to be able to flip it to someone else for a billion dollar? <laughs> but when ultimately, I think when that liquidity dries up, that's when I think that's when Ethereum will be on very very shaky grounds. Yeah, really interesting way to summarize it because. I'm thinking now back to some of the early writings at the Nakamoto Institute where the, the boys there were writing articles like app coins are snake oil or pointing out the problems of utility tokens. And as you were rightly saying, Ethereum doesn't have a chance at winning the store of value, quote unquote. I mean, that's what kind of the VC shitcoiner people is. Oh, that's store of value. But really, it's just money, right? We're just trying to win. We're just trying to create money, like reliable, open money. Anyone can run a node. Anyone can use Bitcoin. Anyone can validate the full 21 million coins. Like that's that's really what is, you know, that's what that's the Bitcoin project. Yeah. And of course, there are different ways you can use Bitcoin, but that's the broad idea of Bitcoin uh, where, you know, there's this 21 million. And as we as we're saying, it's a distribution schedule, whereas with Ethereum, they can change that money supply. So it's not they're just not going to they're never going to win that. They're never going to become that. And then on if they're just trying to be a utility, well, there's a lot of already well-documented and known problems with utility coins because somebody else can just go and make a technology that does it cheaper or does it more centralized and faster or better or some different new way. So there's really a lot of problems there in that way. And I love the uh, MySpace of Ethereum is the MySpace. Actually, while we're here as well, I'm curious, do you have any thoughts on, uh, I think, what I believe is the OG critique of Proof of Stake, which is the Nothing at Stake paper? And I believe it was Andrew Polster who wrote that in, I want to say 2014. Do you have any thoughts on that? Or do you think, how well do you think that paper holds up now? To my knowledge, and I have to revisit, I, I, I haven't read that one in a while. To my knowledge, it's, it doesn't hold up as well uh, for the fact that it uh, it didn't account back then for the sort of implementation of slashing that Ethereum is with. Like it didn't account for the proof of stake implementation that Ethereum is now proposing. So there's still, I believe, some some value to it, and I'd encourage anyone to to read it because it it, it certainly gives a, a a sort of very intelligent perspective on uh, on the challenges of, of proof of stake. But I think some of the arguments break down a little bit, especially when it comes to how Andrew proposed that there is not necessarily a cost to attacking to attacking uh, the, the system. It's not clear that mm-hmm. like what Ethereum is has, has come up with is uh, a perfect solution for it, but it's a different sort of scenario. So um, I, I don't know that we can evaluate it under, under the same lens. Yeah. Gotcha. And I mean, in fairness, it is what seven years old or something like that now. So that was, that was quite a while back. But I think the arguments that you've presented today certainly make a lot of sense to me around centralization pressure that is simply there in Ethereum. So, did you have any, I guess, final comments you wanted to make on on this whole topic? Well, I mean, ultimately, I think I've said all that needed to be said. I think I would encourage. What I would want to say is that I would encourage, and this is what I said in the, in the very beginning, is I would encourage people to start, um, if you're going to get into these conversations, I think you owe it to yourself to get a little more knowledge uh, about uh, exactly uh, how these systems are, are designed. I mean, you might think that it's not worth your time, which is perfectly fair. I would encourage anyone that's working you know, on anything 
productive within the Bitcoin ecosystem. And that's just not, that's not just like shit posting on Twitter like I am every day to not bother with that. You know, uh, continue doing what you're doing. You're doing well. Continue writing code. We don't need you. I, I'll, I'll end all the, the, the arguments on, Twitter's, on Twitter. But for anyone else that sort of gets into these conversations, I'm afraid that a lot of times we end up looking a little bit silly. The, the Bitcoiners, and the, I mean, there's, uh, there's a guy called uh, Eric Wall uh, on, on Twitter. I think you, this Norwegian guy, I think. Um, yep. He uh, often makes the argument, uh, sorry, he's made the argument in the past that uh, a lot of Ethereum people actually probably know more about or understand Bitcoin better than Bitcoiners give them credit for. And the same is not true. A lot of people, uh, and especially, unfortunately, like from this sort of last batch of Bitcoiners, they've been ingrained, you know, with this, uh, with this idea that Ethereum is evil, but they actually understand none of it. And so when they come around to discussing it, they're, uh, especially if there's an audience, you know, if there's people that are uh, new to this ecosystem that end up uh, overhearing those conversations from my perspective. And if I was that person, I would think that uh, Ethereum's definitely got something uh, going for itself because the arguments that I'm hearing from the average Bitcoiner on Clubhouse, not very convincing, sometimes pretty embarrassing. So again, if you're going to sort of critique those systems, you really should just dive a little more deeper into, into them so that you can actually have, you know, an intelligent conversation. Um, I mean, I, I, I've been getting into arguments uh, lately with, with people in Bitcoin, Bitcoin maxis, because uh, I think there's some value to uh, the NFT uh, idea. I think 99%, 99.9% of it at the moment is completely speculative. It's a bubble. It'll pop. And also it's worth pointing out, you know, NFTs ultimately is not a moat for Ethereum and people associate it uh, with Ethereum so much that uh, they don't think for themselves and uh, use sort of a, a rational mindset where they evaluate the idea on its own uh, without, uh, you know, immediately saying, ah, oh, well, it's from Ethereum. It's total shit. Uh, there's no interest here. Personally, I think some of it is pretty tenable. Uh, but then I'm always, like I said, I'm always faced with these conversations of um, people just being blind uh, for, for no reason that, you know, they've been, it's sort of a, this conditioning that we've created uh, throughout the years with people that are uh, new to this ecosystem, this sort of toxic maximalism. And I'm all for toxic maximalism, but I'm also all for sort of uh, critical thinking. I need people to not trust the oracles and not trust me or someone else yeah. to tell them like, okay. this thing is bad. Don't believe in it. Don't trust it. No, you need to come to these conclusions on your own. You need to think for yourself. And, and so uh, whenever you encounter a subject like this, yeah, just bring some rational thinking to the table. You'll be better off for it. Everyone will be better off. And your audience, if there is any, will benefit. Gotcha. Yeah, so I think, and for look, for listeners out there who just think, look, all I care about is sound money that's fine. Then just don't worry about anything else. Just focus just on Bitcoin. And then I think maybe one of the lessons of this episode might just be that uh, here are some ways to think about a more like an intelligent critique, basically. So if you're going to be talking about Ethereum, maybe if you can offer a more intelligent critique, that's probably the, the better way to go about it. So that's probably a good spot to finish here. Alex, uh, where can people find you online if they want to follow you or see your work? Uh, Twitter. Twitter is the... Uh... 
probably the place where I'm most active. So you can find me at uh, Burge Alex Ford. It's B-E-R-G-E Alex Ford. I'm happy, always happy to chat with uh, you. You'll see I'm pretty active. Uh, I mean, I'll, I have some comments, some tweets. I'll uh, rub people the wrong way, but uh, that's the nature of this uh, of this <laughs> of this ecosystem. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Alex. It's been a pleasure chatting with you today. Same. Thanks. Thanks for the time. Uh, it was very, very, very interesting chat. Have a good one. Get the show notes at stefanlibera.com slash 303, and you can also find a transcript there shortly. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the Citadels.